welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome to Professor Dave Debates. We have a great episode today. I love today's episode because we're talking about probably my most favorite thing to talk about in the entire world, and that is aliens. I should say in the entire universe because aliens are not in this world. So we're talking about my favorite thing. As you may know, if you've heard other episodes, I take every opportunity I have to take a sharp tangent into talking about aliens. I always do so. I love to, I just, I can't get enough of speculating about aliens. Where are they? What are they like? This is very well encapsulated by the field known as astrobiology. And uh, so today, to help us pontificate and uh, speculate about this is Dr. Sinan Du. Uh, she is a postdoctoral researcher and a NASA program manager in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at UC Riverside. Uh, she does very interesting research on the interstellar and circumgalactic gas in distant star-forming galaxies. And she's also very enthusiastic about K-12 STEM outreach. So we share two passions, one being science communication and the other being space and astronomy and aliens and all things off-world, really. So uh, this is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I had a great time talking to Sinan Du. So here we are discussing... Does alien life exist? Hey everyone, we're here with Sinan Du, and we're going to be talking eventually about aliens. We want to get to the bottom of this. Are they out there? Where could they be? What might they be like? But let's just sort of ease into it. Uh, I want to talk to you first just about what you do. What, what is your work and what are you doing day to day? I study galaxies, galaxies mm -hmm. that are outside of the Milky Way, and they're not just outside the Milky Way. They're really, really far away. Mm -hmm. um, so it would take um, light to travel billions of years um, to reach us. So, many, many megaparsecs away. Exactly. So we're essentially looking at the galaxies um, that are back in time. So mm -hmm. that's not what they look like at the moment. So specifically, I studied the gas in the galaxies. And mm -hmm. um, as we know, so galaxies, um, they contain uh, a lot of gas, typically. And those gas, part, part of it uh, would become um, the fuel for um, star formation. Right. So that's all the stuff in between the stars. Exactly. So that's what we call the interstellar gas. Mm -hmm. um, so I study um, the inflow and outflow of um of the gas. Mm -hmm. So uh, once, uh, say, like a, a supernova explosion happens, it could drive a large amount of gas out, um, even outside of the galaxy, to be, um, eventually escaping. So it ejects some of the gas out of the galaxy. Yes. And sometimes if um, there's enough cold, cold gas around the galaxy, it's like um, uh, in the surrounding area, then the galaxy could just uh, be accreting that gas um, and using that as uh, extra fuel for star formation. So the gas flows is really both ways. So supernova pushes it out, but then the gravity of the galaxy pulls it back in? Uh, only for cold gas, because mm -hmm. if the if the gas is hot enough, then um, the gas would just be hunting there. It's very hard for them to condense and actually form stars. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're looking for star. We're looking at star formation. Really, is what we're looking for. Exactly. And what are we trying to extract there? You're looking at galaxies at different distances and therefore different times, and comparing star formation at different times in the galaxies or in the universe's evolution. 
Uh, yeah, and not only for how the stars are different, also how the gases are different. Mm-hmm. Say like um, how many heavy elements they may contain, mm-hmm. and um, are they more or less clumpy compared to the gas in the Milky Way galaxy? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what about uh, say like the overall uh, uh, line of sight? Um, just say like if we look straightly into a galaxy, how much gas? would be would we be able to see mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. like that and do we find that the older a galaxy is in or, or the, the closer it is to us meaning the later it is in the evolution of the universe that much of the gas has found its way into a star is there a correlation there um well it's it's sort of so um for the the galaxies that i study they are um much younger compared to the milky way galaxy so they are typically more active um in forming stars mm-hmm. so that's one and they are um also containing on average less metals um heavy elements mm-hmm. compared to the milky way galaxy so that's a sort of like the evolutionary trend that we're seeing here is um so for a galaxy to evolve from younger to older stage um it's um well it's assembly it's a stellar mass which means it's just like um raising the numbers of stars um Mm -hmm. and the stars they at the end of their um stage some of the massive stars would release the heavy metals from the cores so that would enrich the interstellar Mm -hmm. gas that Mm -hmm. i'm studying Mm -hmm. so over time you would see that the heavy metals in the gas um the concentration or the abundance would actually increase Mm -hmm. more more population one stars right is that yeah i'm trying to use all my all my lingo oh wow i mean that's yeah well you're right there with the jargon yeah <laughs> yeah i just finished making astronomy tutorials so i uh you know i'm, I'm <laughs> it's all fresh in my mind here um okay so we're looking at you at, at galaxies what about um shapes of galaxies and all the different we're seeing spirals and ellipticals is this is this a does this have to do with collisions and mergings of galaxies why are why are there so many shapes um, that's a very good question. So I would say, uh, typically for field galaxies, which are just like galaxies on their own, they doesn't belong to any specific groups. They're typically, um, either spiral or irregular. Mm-hmm. Irregular tends to be like smaller, less massive galaxies. Um, but for ellipticals, we do believe that, um, it's typically the end product of a galaxy merger. So you would typically find a, um, a large massive elliptical galaxy sitting at the center of a galaxy cluster, for example. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, it's there, not because it, it was born there in situ, but, um, it, it was the product, the results of mm-hmm, galaxy mergers. Mm-hmm. And you would still find some spiral galaxies here and there in the outskirt of the galaxy cluster. Mm-hmm. So there's still... That haven't quite, haven't quite gotten into the mosh pit yet. Yes, but maybe one day. And for example, like our Milky Way galaxy is also colliding with... Um, the Andromeda galaxy, right? right, right. In mm-hmm. four billion years. So So it's almost like galaxies tend to form with a lot of structure to them and then as they sort of collide and merge it just becomes this blob of stars. Um that's true because the the spiral arms uh they're essentially where the most active star formation mm-hmm. is. Uh but when it, uh galaxies collide, the star formation is is just like um momentarily like instantaneously right Mm -hmm. so almost all the gas or all the available gas would be used up 
just for that one um, short period of star formation. And after that, um, you basically have no other available gas if you if the galaxy cannot accrete cold gas onto it. Mm -hmm. So that's why you're you're just essentially losing all the spiral structures where mm -hmm. they're just like a compressed dense gas where right. star formation can constantly going on such a in incredible change on such a large scale it's an unbelievable phenomenon yeah. now what about from the perspective of somebody uh, some civilization uh, on a planet that is orbiting a star in one of these galaxies, what does the merger look like to them? I mean, granted, it takes a f couple billion years, right? Mm -hmm. But w where, what would they see? What would be different in their night sky as that was happening? Um, well, I guess to them, it's probably not a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, other than say the after the merger the galaxy is essentially dead but to a specific star or planetary system um i wouldn't say like the star is likely to be ejected out somewhere else or things like that because the stars are really sparsely located mm -hmm. from each other so for example um if i say that the sun is a fist size okay a mm -hmm. size of a fist um then the um our earth is about um the size of a pinpoint of a pen mm -hmm. um and then the nearest star from the sun um is about the distance from the east coast to the west coast wow so you're raising your fist in the air and our friend in new york is raising their fist in the air and that's the two that's the nearest star that's the nearest star that's proxima centauri um yes so that's unbelievable so that's why it really the distances become staggering when we start to think about exploring even just our little nook of our galaxy it's just so mind-bogglingly far away to get to even the next star next door exactly mm -hmm. um and i know that there's a ongoing mission um it's um i think it's called like a star um, 100 year or something. Sorry, I'm just blanking on the name. But um, its um, its mission or its goal is to uh, reach to that uh, star system uh, with a travel time less than 100 years. Okay. So um, I mean, even even to do that, some some people would say, oh, a century. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. well, although it's like only 4.4 light years away, but that still requires you to travel you know, um, not comparable, but like a few percent of uh, speed, speed of light, of light right? right? That's still... Which is going to require a paradigm shift in propulsion. Uh, what are we going to need? We'll, we'll need at least fusion, I'm sure, to uh, on a spacecraft to be able to go that fast, I would assume. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a challenge. So that's a good segue because we're we're sort of getting an uh, an idea of the the sheer distances involved in our galaxy, let alone other galaxies. Where where you're looking, I mean, you're looking at these other galaxies. This is so far away that we can't even detect any fine detail or fine structure. It would be impossible to recognize uh, uh, a civilization or something like that. It would have to be absolutely uh, incredible to be able to notice something like that. But Speaking within our own galaxy, we can see all of these other systems. Do we have any evidence or any reason, specific reason to believe that there could be other intelligent civilizations nearby? Um, well, 
personally speaking, um, I am optimistic that there is extraterrestrial life、um, even within the Milky Way galaxy.、Mm-hmm. But first, we don't have any evidence saying that.、Right. And when I say extraterrestrial life, I I mean mostly just.、Uh, Um, on the mic- micro、um, microscope, so it's not necessarily intelligence.、Mm-hmm. And the hard thing with intelligent、um, life forms is that we don't we don't have enough data to say how likely、um, a creature is. Is to develop from you know primitive to intelligent. That's right, because we only know of our ourselves as an example. It's really difficult to quantify the process. So yeah, so so let's talk about this in two stages. We we can talk about the probability of a biogenesis. We can talk about the probability of microbes,、mm-hmm. and then later we can talk about if you know how hard it is for those to become something that's got a radio antenna and trying to talk to us.、Right. But let's just start with the basics. It seems to me that there is some. Uh, evidence, or at least we're exploring the potential of of、uh, environments that are hospitable to life, even within our own solar system. Is that correct? That is correct. What are some of these places? Um, so one place,、um, and it's it's been super popular, is Mars.、Mm-hmm. So although、uh, Mars, well, the current condition of Mars doesn't seem very habitable to life.、Um, well, it's pretty much believed um, that. Um, Mars used to have、um, liquid water on surface.、Mm-hmm. Um, How do we know? Oh, because we've seen evidence like um, um, uh, like the channels、uh, craved by flood or、mm-hmm. um, flowing water,、mm-hmm. and they were also、um, like round-shaped、uh, pebbles、um, on surface,、mm-hmm. which could well, they 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 must be well almost. Um, certainly, must have been shaped by flowing water. Right, waves and stuff. It's like what we see at the beach, right? What we see、yeah. at the beach here, if we see it there, it might have been a beach, right? Yeah. And we see these these canyons and things that we know were formed by flowing water here. So why shouldn't the principle stay or, or hold over there as well? That's true. Well, so so then what happened? Why does it look like it does now? Um. Yeah. Well, that is a very good question.、Mm-hmm. So, um, uh. Well, I would say Mars. Um. Just because now it has a very very thin atmosphere,、mm-hmm. so the atmospheric pressure is low. Um. That's why liquid water is not stable on the surface.、Mm-hmm. But there's there's still a large po- uh probability that liquid water can be found under surface. Under the surface. Yeah. So we need.、Uh, What are the rovers that were? They they just stopped working recently, didn't they? The ones that were over、uh, there. Curiosity. Yeah, so they don't have the, they don't have the capacity to kind of drill under the under the ground, unfortunately, right? Uh, well, not that far away. So、mm-hmm. their、um, Curiosity is trying to just、uh, explore around and try to collect some rock samples and also study the composition of the rock. So it's still going. Uh, well, um. Let's hope、um, one day the sandstorm will clear up, and then it would be powered again. Oh, it's currently waiting out a storm. Yes. How long has that been going on? Um, if I remember correctly, that happened in June or July. Okay. <laughs> few、yeah. months. It's a it's a miserable summer up there. Yeah, definitely. So. 
Okay, so but yeah, so it's just kind of taken up scoops of the scoops of the ground, pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. But we, yeah, what, soon, uh, you know, it seems inevitable that some people are going to get up there, and we're going to have some more sophisticated uh, infrastructure up there, and w- maybe we'll dig a little bit, and maybe we'll find water, and maybe in that water there will be microbes. W- w- is that is that possible, or you think it's just long gone? Uh, well, it it might be possible. So. Mm-hmm. I believe that in Martian soils, we have already found organic molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so those are possible, you know, uh, bl- building blocks of life, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure um, how likely it is for us to, you know, identify microbial fossils, for example, from Martian soil. But I mean, um, it's it's possible. And and to me, Mars is actually one of the most promising um, alternative you know, to, to find life in the okay. solar system. Okay. What are some other ones? Um, some, some other ones would be like the Jovian moons. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, Jupiter has four large moons. Um, and, um, I would say, uh, um, any of them is possible to mm-hmm. have life, but the probability is, is different. So the mar- most promising one among the four moons um, is Europa. Mm-hmm. So Europa um, is believed uh, to have a salty under um, undersurface ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, there have also been evidence uh, say uh, that there's like um, icy volcano eruptions. So it's like w- warm water slush coming out to repaving the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, well, it's it's got enough internal heat from uh, the tidal heating. Okay, so this is an interesting point, right? Because we often talk about the habitable zone of of a of a star, right? So Earth is is nice and lucky, and and we're right in this great spot where we've just got liquid water everywhere. Mm-hmm. But there's this other. Explain a little bit more about tidal forces, because Jupiter's so far away from the sun, it's got to be so cold, right? So what is this phenomenon that is allowing for there to be w- liquid water over there? Um, that is a very good point. So first I would like to, you know, jump back a little bit talking mm-hmm. about the, um, the habitable zones mm-hmm. we typically say, well, that is basically defined, um, as a region where, uh, a planet lies in, um, where the liquid water would be stable on the surface. Right. But so th- you're, you're, you've got this, this gradient of temperature and you go further away and then it dips a little befo- below 100 Celsius and then we've got liquid and then a little too far and you go below zero and then, and then it's solid. But this little Goldilocks zone is just right. Yeah, that's, that's right. But um, let's, let's note that definition is fairly narrow mm-hmm. because uh, there are other, other habitable worlds where you could uh, first say um, there might be subsurface water, right? Yeah. And that might also be habitable. And there's also uh, an idea called the extended habitable zone where you actually take into account uh, the planetary atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So if the atmosphere is like warm enough, even the planet is not necessarily just in the habitable zone defined right. by the temperature. Well, liquid water might still be able to survive on surface. So the thicker the atmosphere, the m- the further the habitable zone extends, essentially. Uh, that's correct. Like if Mars had a very thick atmosphere, we would consider that to be uh, in a, in the habitable zone, right? If if it was thick enough that that it, the surface temperatures were comparable to Earth, then it would have to be habitable. That's that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and for for these moons, um. Well, the po- uh, one point that I found really interesting is that um, in like um, our Earth, 
um, which gets the energy directly from the sun or from the um, stellar radiation, those moons, just because they're so far away from the sun, you know, the, the solar radiation is basically like not useful. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of this uh, tidal um, interaction, not only with Jupiter, but also among the moons, um, so there is, um, whenever there's a, like a rock water boundary, then, um, you have this tidal friction going mm -hmm. on at that what is, layer. What does that look like exactly? Cause I think a lot of people, when they think of tides, they think of lunar tides and they think of the ocean going up and down, right? Yeah. So what, what does it mean in a more general way that can elucidate this phenomenon? Um, so I would say, um, whenever you picture the lunar tides, that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but to if you jump out of the, the Earth and directly just look um, on the lunar tides from space, then you would basically see that there are two uh, tidal bulges created by the, um, the moon, for example. Mm -hmm. So those tidal bulges are aligned and are facing to the moon just because um, the, the near end is the closest to the moon, right? So it gets um, stronger gravitational attraction it's tugging a little more yes and uh, there's another bulge just um on the opposite side typically people would get confused why there would be such a bulge because that's the fourth far farther end mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. uh but the far end um compared to the rest um of the earth and the ocean uh that's where it gets the least tug right so all the other parts get stronger tugs than that so uh, comparatively, that looks like it's also, um, you know, just... Oh, I see. It's getting tugged the least, yeah. so it can sort of stay away a little more. Exactly. Kind of. Okay. Yeah, so that's why you have um, two tidal bulges. And remember that um, the, the moon's uh, Earth system, they don't just stay there. So uh, while the moon is orbiting the, the Earth, um, um, well, so there is a slight difference uh, regarding the moon's orbit and also um, the Earth rotation. So that means, um, given some time, uh, the, the tidal bulges would be disaligned with where the moon is to the Earth, mm -hmm. right? So um, when that happens, the moon will actually um, e exerting a torque trying to realign the tidal bulges of the Earth. Wow. Yeah. So when that happens, um, you know, the tidal bulges are trying to re realign themselves, and that's what causing the friction uh, between the water and rock boundaries. And then there's the energy um, mm -hmm, dissipation. Mm -hmm. It's just like friction um, gives, gives you heat, right? Just rubbing your hands together. Yes. You get the heat. Exactly. And so what does that look like in the Jovian system? So the Jovian system is, uh, well, it's basically the same. The only thing is we don't have, well, the only difference is we don't have um, liquid uh, um, ocean mm -hmm. on the surface, right? right. But still, the, um, even for rock, um, there would be stress inside. Mm -hmm. So that stress would still create uh, some sort of heat. And then... Um, you've got rock, you've got ice. Yes, mm -hmm. and that sometimes would be um, sufficient uh, to sustain a subsurface ocean. And then also Jupiter is so, so big, so that makes more of a difference, right? There's a, a much, the magnitude of friction being generated is much greater for that system. Is, is that true? Um, well, I, I would say for Isle, the closest moon to Jupiter, that's the case. Mm -hmm. But uh, the further the moons are from Jupiter, then the... the 
the less the tidal force they're experiencing, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for the further ones, say like Callisto and Ganymede, they are mostly experiencing the tidal forces among the moons, just um, just among th those four. Mm -hmm. So well, um, one interesting thing is just because of those um, uh, gravitational interactions, Io, Europa, and um, Ganymede, they are now in orbital resonance, which means um, uh, the time for uh, Ga Gamanid to orbit um, one revolution around Jupiter, that would be exactly um, for Europa to orbit twice mm -hmm. and for Io to orbit four times. Oh, wow. So they sort of just, due to the interactions over thousands and millions of years, sort of settle into these little uh, patterns. Yeah. Kind of. Okay. Y yes. And Callisto is yet to be... Um, um, in this orbital resonance, mm -hmm. but it it's trying. Well, it's it's getting there. It's the furthest it's, of the four, I believe. Right? Yeah, it's mm -hmm. the furthest. And uh, once it's in resonance, it would be you know it would be one to two to four to eight. Okay. Yeah. So all right, so we're back to Europa. Then we we we've we've elucidated this process by which we've got water. We're we're comfortable with that. We've got water under the surface. So what's next? What else is required? for you know potentially abiogenesis um that is a very good question um so i would say first um you could see whether this planet or this moon is in the habitable zone or in the extended habitable zone so oh, of that planet um well in a star system right uh -huh. oh, okay yeah yeah uh and even it, it's not for europa it might still be possible right. oh i see so we're yeah we're figuring out ways that it can have liquid water yeah yeah um so so that's one um and the second one would be looking at uh, the planetary size or like the moon size mm -hmm. so for a planet um for example, why Mars is n now not habitable for life, it's because, um, well, it's relatively small compared to Earth. Um, so it's about um, half of the radius of Earth. Mm -hmm. um, so that means it could actually very quickly lose its internal heat. Mm -hmm. um, so if you compare, say, like a um, meatball and um, a turkey, when they were both done cooking, which one would cool faster, mm -hmm. right? So after a few hours, you may still find the interior of the turkey still being warm, but the meatball is like completely cooled down. There's just more matter for the heat to have to travel through for the larger object. It just cools more slowly. Uh, for smaller objects, um, the surface area per volume is larger. Oh, I see. So that's that's where the heat can goes. can escape more easily. Exactly. So, so really, if you think of the early solar system as the oven being still on, mm -hmm. right? And so everything kind of all, everything sort of collided and then it kind of chilled out and the collisions kind of stopped. Just the fact that Earth was much larger, it just it took longer for it to cool down. Mars cooled down a little quicker. So maybe billions of years ago, it was looking a little Earth-like even, but then it just it just cooled down very quickly. That's that's right. Mm -hmm. um, and also because uh, a, a lot of um, you know um, uh, consequences following that rapid cool down. Um, that also contributes to, you know, the current thin atmosphere mm -hmm. of Mars. What about the magnetic field? Does that have anything to do with it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, magnetic field, as we know, is a really, really protective shield of any uh, potentially habitable planet, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, well, in order to have a, like, 
in um intrinsic magnetic field like the earth um so the planet needs to have some sort of um conductive core mm -hmm. um so that could be like a liquid metal and for our earth um the outer the outer core is liquid iron mm -hmm. so and um another very important criteria is um that the rotation uh, well the rotation speed cannot be so slow so because um, it's got to kind of mix it up as it goes or yeah so uh for to generate magnetic field you basically need like a very tiny um um current loops mm -hmm. right so um you need some conductive material and you also need that circular motion mm -hmm. there why do we need it to be liquid though because we think of a like a household magnet that's a solid object mm -hmm. right because is that it mars mars's uh, core has solidified right as mm -hmm. it cooled and so that's why it can generate a magnetic field. I'm just trying to under wrap my head around this magnetism thing. It's so crazy when you think of a whole planet uh, exhibiting this level of magnetism, you know? Right. Um, so one thing I could think about is it may not necessarily be right, but is um, whenever you have a magnet at home, um, I mean, it's like... Uh, magnetized by the earth magnetic field oh right right okay. but if you just like start with um a raw piece of iron and it's completely like uh magnetically neutral then i don't think it could generate anything how could it flow right the, the 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 atoms need to align in a particular way exactly. and they requires a fluid medium to be able to arrange themselves that way Right, so... I think that's it. I think we figured it out. <laughs> that's got to be right. That sounds right to me. Wow, thank you. <laughs> okay, so so we, Mars loses its magnetic field. Uh, it loses its protection from the, the solar wind, and just the atmosphere gets stripped away. Then mm -hmm. And then now it doesn't even have any insulatory uh, capacity. And now we've got a little ice ball on our hands here. Yeah, mm -hmm. Um. I mean, there's a, a Mars One mission, which is super ambitious. So they're trying to do their first manned mission to Mars. I mean, of course, it's a one way, but um, they're targeting 2032, which is just you know in 14 years. Yeah. Right? So that's um, um, well, that's their goal. It used to be 2024 or something like that, right? I think it always overly ambitious, <laughs> but. Uh, would yeah, you would you go uh well i want to leave longer so no <laughs> right no i hear you i want to go but i want to come back oh yeah <laughs> absolutely not doing the one way and and you know what um even they announced it as saying oh we're only doing it one way um i think already around three thousand astronauts signed up uh, astronauts not general public like specifically oh um or just i well, so according to uh, the article I read, they are astronauts. Mm -hmm. But I guess, like, even for general public, in order to, you know, survive the, the trip to, to Mars. Go through astronaut training, of course. Yeah, yeah so you would become a, <laughs> yeah. That's astronaut. nuts. That's nuts. I mean, I don't know about that one, but I think they just sold the first private ticket for, go, you know, going up to the moon and back, I think, with uh, SpaceX. Wow. There, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that, you know, if that started to become relatively commonplace for wealthy people i you know you count me in for that oh yeah i mean i have i have no problem relocating all the rich people to the moon mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so we're talking a lot about where liquid water can be, mm-hmm. right? But it, it, do we do we know that we need liquid water for life to exist? That is a very good point. So I would say, according to physics, we don't. We don't mm-hmm. necessarily need water, but water certainly has its own um, function mm-hmm. um, to support life. Well, we know water works. Yes. Um, so, well, even say like we are not talking about water, we're just talking about like in general liquid A media, liquid medium, yeah. right? So we we need such liquid medium to first dissolve chemicals so they're they can engage they can swim around and they can find each other to to do chemistry exactly and then um we also need such liquid medium to um transport um chemicals to different parts right Mm -hmm. and then um this chemical medium is ideally also a reactant so, for example, um, water is one of the reactants in, like, the photosynthesis processes. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, according to those criteria, we probably have, like, other um, options. For example, like, uh, uh, ethane or ammonia or ethanol, things mm-hmm. like that. But um, water has its, you know, has its own advantage. So first is that it has a really high boiling point compared to all the other options. Mm-hmm. So at 100 Celsius, it's turning into vapor, which means under 100 Celsius, which is already, you know, fairly high, mm-hmm. um, it would remain liquid. So, of course, we want um, the temperature range for which the liquid medium could remain liquid as large as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So that it has the largest possibility to find it liquid at a given point. But the fascinating thing is like, I mean, you mentioned hydrocarbons. Uh, it isn't uh, Titan, doesn't Titan have hydrocarbon rain? Yes. So like it's, it's, it almost, every substance then designates a new habitable zone where it is liquid so like something as cold as titan now you just have a different compound that's that that offers a liquid medium Mm -hmm. that's just crazy to think about if you get rid of if you get rid of this water-centric view then you have all these substances in all these regions where you could have liquid something that's true Mm -hmm. uh but one thing to keep in mind is um even in the world life developed on on um titan um well just because it's such a cold world then the metabolism rate would be extremely low right it's difficult to do chemistry it's difficult and it's also difficult to develop intelligent life Mm -hmm. just because our our brain is very energy consuming Mm -hmm. that's true okay yeah okay so energy or i guess maybe the leveling factor is it doesn't matter what the liquid medium is but there has to be chemistry occurring there has to be an exchange of materials and bonds breaking and bonds forming exactly tying to which um water has another advantage which is it's a polar molecule mm-hmm. which means it could uh dissolve other pol- polar molecules for example uh the salt right but it wouldn't um dissolve the um say the cell membrane Mm-hmm. So that is something really important. So, um, for example, all the um, hydrocarbons you were talking about, I believe that those are mostly nonpolar. Mm-hmm. So the t- well, uh, the cell membranes that were f- 
uh, that are found in typical organisms that would completely just dissolve in such. But maybe, maybe some other region has discovered a different kind of cell membrane where, uh, whereby the the outer edges are the nonpolar and the polar is the is the middle section or something. You know, yeah, could be totally different. But I think that the temperature thing stands still, no matter what, no matter what substances you're using, there has to be enough heat energy for, for reactions to happen. Exactly. And the, and the last point is, um, for water, uh, once it freezes, ice would float on water. So that prevents, uh, further freezing of the liquid media. Right. That's a fun little coincidence there too. It's fun to think of all these little coincidences that worked out, you know, the moon and then the, you know, magnetic field and then just the sheer probability that ice is less dense as a solid, you know, (laughs) all this random stuff. But, uh, but I do like the point that you made about water being polar and that, that we, uh, there can be minerals dissolved. Mm-hmm. in there right because when we think about abiogenesis i mean we don't really fully understand how it happened on earth but i think one i think my favorite hypothesis is this thing about the uh the tidal pools uh so you've got these uh tidal pools right the tide comes in and out so you have you have these extended periods of time where there's just a little pool on the beach and because of all the rock and stuff there's different minerals and then, I mean, I studied a little bit of, uh, you know, heterogeneous catalysis. You've got some mineral surface, you've got some metal atoms or something, and then you've got whatever you have and, you know, you've got an amino acid or something mm-hmm. and it just sort of makes its way to the mineral and then something polymerizes or you just, we don't know for sure, but it sort of works there that, that, that polymers could form in these little tidal pools, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, there was also the, um, a very early, uh, Miller-Urey experiment, which studied how, um, Mm -hmm. the first organic molecules were formed on earth. Right. So that, that might be, you know, just the very first step of how life originated. Yeah. So amino acids, no problem. I mean, if you, you, it's scientifically demonstrated that we can get amino acids from, from these very basic substances that are all over the, the solar system. I mean, I guess maybe the question marks lie more in how did we get self-propagating biomolecules, right? How did Mm -hmm. we get, you know, maybe it's a little, it's not that hard to think of how amino acids might have polymerized spontaneously or or nucleotides or something but how did we get dna right a thing that is that makes itself again you know right that's really we have to admit we don't really know how that happened yeah um and i would say um uh, according to my own research um dna might not be the the first um genetic material that existed on on earth in fact i think we are fairly certain rna came first i would believe how about this how about how about here's a little food for thought let's say mars was um more you know habitable back then and uh rna or certain biomolecules evolved there first and then an asteroid comes, blows a little bit of uh, little chunks of rocks off of Mars. That comes over here, and we're all Martian in ancestry, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't say it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I actually like that idea. Mm-hmm. So the only thing is, how would, it be, how would we be able to tell whether... Um, some some life form is uh indigenous to earth or right. some is you know just like um 
exotic right Right. or or imagine finding um microbial life or or some evidence of microbial life on mars and finding that we have a biochemical kinship you know what i mean yeah finding like oh my god they're they have rna they have the same rna that we have that's nuts then you could that would be evidence for that crazy thing i just said (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. um yeah and uh, well, so this also uh, brings another comment that I, that I want wanted to have is that um, so for manned mission to Mars, uh, one thing we got to be extra careful about is um, to prevent the contaminations. Right. Right. So um, one thing is that while some um, uh, materials uh, or like uh, bacteria that we we might bring to Mars that could potentially confuse the origin of Martian life. Right. right? We, we look under our shoe and go, look, I found something. Yeah. And that's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Well, I feel like we could pretty, I mean, if we were able to immediately identify that it's something that exists here exactly as it does here, you know, I think we could be like, ah, are you sure? Look, look farther away from the landing site. <laughs> but, uh, but I think if we found something utterly unrecognizable, yeah, then we would have, we would know what's going on. But we, we also have to worry about if we do bring bacteria over there, what's that? What, what will that do? Right? That might. Who knows how that's going to affect any semblance of a biosphere that there is there. Exactly. So, so that's why we're trying to prevent contamination like both ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, because introducing bacteria either to Martian ecosystem or our earth, that would be, that could potentially be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. We just, there's this thriving uh, biome on Mars and we bring some virus and kill it all. Yeah. Without knowing that we're doing that. (laughs) That would be nuts. Okay, well, so how about this? So we're identifying a lot of places and ways that there can be life. Let's just take it for granted that abiogenesis is trivial. As amazing as it is, it's happening all over the place. Every system in the galaxy, we've got microbes. It's commonplace. Everywhere you look, we've got them. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about what it takes to become an intelligent civilization such as we are, uh, you know, not to brag. I think humans are pretty (laughs) intelligent. But how, how rare is that? And where are they and why aren't we hearing them? Um, wow. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> that's, that's true. Okay, so going from uh, microbial life forms to like human or not even human, just like in- intelligent creatures, mm-hmm. um, I would say first um, we need to have a fairly high metabolism rate just to um, provide energy to our brain, right, to perform all those complex um, behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, well, there's, there's one, um, basically measure, uh, of intelligence on earth, if we want to adopt it, um, is that the, the brain mass or the brain volume per body mass or per body volume. Mm-hmm. So that's basically how, you know, the, the, the fractional, uh, brain mass, right. Relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so human beings, of course, were, were the or the highest one that's true yeah and uh the second one um the second most intelligent creature do you want to guess is it either a chimp or a dolphin it's yeah it's it's a dolphin okay yeah so dolphins are really smart and i would say like they have the intelligence of a like a six-year-old and they're you know super great at learning but one thing that prevent them from being technologically advanced is their 
is their um, body uh, body shape or body plan, mm-hmm. right? So if they don't have hands, it would be super hard for them to actually develop any tools for them to use. Right. Yeah. They. They. Yeah. We've got these handy dandy opposable thumbs. Yes. So that's that's really handy. It's, right. Yeah. It's like. Um, and that's interesting just by virtue of the environments that we exist in. I think being on land lended itself to these kinds of uh, appendages, whereas in the ocean, all of the premium is placed on how quickly you can move through water and, and navigate you know, a, a, an aqueous environment. It's just totally different. But, but I think that we, uh, beyond that, we should also be able to look at communication, right? How mm-hmm. complex is their communication? Right. Um, yeah. Well, so for for dolphins, they basically just use, uh, you know, they communicate um, under underwater. Right. Mm-hmm. They use sauna. Um, and uh, well, for us. Oh, did you did you mean like us communicating with E.T.? Or Well, I mean, just as a measure of an intelligence of a of a species, even given physical limitations, mm. still the brain power will find ways to. Uh, you know, I think communication is a, is a good measure of, of the intellect of a species, I think. Yeah, and it, that also depends on the complexity of the language that you're, they're using, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so they've got their clicks and their little dances and their whatever they're doing. Right. Um, I would say for them, their language is probably like more one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Say like they send out a signal and that signal based on, you know, the... Um, the length of the signal or like uh how how many times it, it's repeated then that that means a thir- certain thing right it means danger or uh, or like let's, food let's or reproduce or oh, yeah, you know, yeah 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 things like, like that yeah, yeah. but okay. but for us um language is, is like multi-dimensional yeah i, I mean w- when you really stop and think about it that we just make these noises and we immediately understand these co- complex and abstract ideas that someone else is trying to communicate. It's just, it really is insane when you think about it, you know, yeah. how hardwired we are for this. But, um, okay, so so speaking of communication, I mean, um, I, I, I want to try to understand, so there's the Fermi paradox, right? Mm-hmm. So the Fermi paradox says we can't hear them, so they're not there, essentially, pretty much, right? So wh- what are we trying to hear? Where are we looking why haven't we found anything? Does that mean no one's there? What do you think? Um, yeah, so it's called a paradox because from the Drake's equation, uh, people would expect at least that they are several. or like Let's more give a little several. background on the Drake yeah. equation. What's that? Okay, well, so the Drake equation is basically trying to estimate um, how, how many um, signals we could get um, from... Uh, uh, say technologically advanced uh, civilizations, mm-hmm. um, either within our Milky Way or in the entire universe, mm-hmm. based on the scale. So that depends on like all different factors. Um, mm-hmm. So first, you would have to know um, well how many stars there is in one galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, what is the likelihood or the fraction for a star to have a planetary system, mm-hmm. at least one planet. Mm-hmm. And um, so what is the possibility for th- a planet to be um, in a habitable condition? Mm-hmm. And even it's habitable, what is the likelihood for life actually 
to exist on that planet. Mm -hmm. And then going from there, what's uh, the probability of that life to develop into an intelligent form of life? Mm -hmm. And after that, um, it has to be intelligent enough to um, do like telecommunication and send out signals right. so that we could detect, right? So it's like we're start like let's say we we just make it simple and say every star has one planet, right? Mm-hmm. So that we're starting with like a hundred billion planets, right? And then each of these factors that were each variable that we're mentioning here just kind of cuts it and makes it smaller and smaller, and 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 we're saying okay, uh, how many of the planets are habitable? Let's say one in ten or something, right? And then how many have life? And oh, it's one in you know one in um, hundred million of those and, yeah. then, and it just gets smaller and smaller right right do we have reasonable estimate i mean how how can we decide that they're reasonable what do the smartest people estimate the final number to be oh uh well there's a huge range mm-hmm. so um for the estimate just within the milky way i would say it ranges from like minus um well 10 10 to the minus 20 something to 10 to the 9 Oh, so anywhere from like basically te- zero, like a hundred, a hundred trillion to to one that it exists at all, versus hey, there's a billion of them out there. Yeah. So so wow. so essentially, we don't have any constraints. <laughs> that's right. That's that's why there's I no say. certainty here. <laughs> no. Well, let's go conservative then. Let let's kind of hit maybe slightly more in the optimistic range, but let's say ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just make a of a ridiculous assumption. We'll just say there are ten. Uh, intelligent civilizations in the in the Milky Way galaxy that are capable of transmitting information. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. Is that possible that they're there and and yet we still can't hear them? Are we just not looking in the right places? There's too much sky to cover, or what is it? Um, I would say it's a combination of um, all those factors you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So they might not be sending the signals to us to the right direction. Mm-hmm. We might. It, isn't it sort of omnidirectional? Like when we transmit something into space, isn't it kind of just a full coverage? Like a, I imagine, like a little sphere of of radiation just kind of propagating everywhere. Well, so that depends on like where you want to hit in the sky. Mm-hmm. If you want to just do like an all sky thing, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, it's just a sphere and it's propagating just like out like that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people would want to like target a specific direction because there's like a. a cluster of stars where the probability of habitable planets it's the highest um, okay. among the surrounding patches of it's skies. like a little city of stars rather than a suburb or, a, or, or a the, desert. the plains yeah 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 mm-hmm. so um in that case you might want want to you know just like focus um to mm-hmm. that specific area so but um if you don't have such estimate or like currently to our human being we basically have no idea like which patches of the sky has the highest probability of life so mm-hmm. we're mostly just be like okay we're sending out signals to it's wherever. just a crapshoot it's <laughs> just needle in a haystack yeah um so that could be part of it that could be part of it um another reason might be um they are in the milky way but they're still really really far from us mm-hmm. right other side of the galactic nucleus yeah too much stuff in the way so it, it might take say like thousands or like tens of thousands of years for mm-hmm. that signal to even to reach us right however though assuming because on a cosmic time scale even something like a hundred thousand years is very short oh it's very, very short so you want to think because here's one thing uh we're uh, our star is a is a 
pop one, right? Yes. So uh, essentially, we have a, a newer star. It's like what four, five, five billion years old, right? Mm-hmm. So, but there are other stars in the galaxy that are, say, ten billion years old or something like that, right? Yeah. So, what if we just make an assumption that from the from the first protocell on Earth to where we are today mm-hmm. is sort of like a roughly average length of time for going from the first living thing to what we are now Mm -hmm. which is what would we call that four billion years yeah so if there if that happened on a star that's 10 billion years old that civilization ought to have been around at that level of uh, technological advancement since before our sun even formed so not only we should have been hearing them this whole time but also they should have maybe been colonizing the entire galaxy and they should be everywhere they should be all around us every single you know (laughs) what i mean they have so much time to have so they're you either they never happened and that's not real or they're everywhere and they're just we can't see them for some reason you know yeah yeah and i i would add another layer to it so um, well, we were assuming that they're still there, even they, you know, um, reached that uh, advancement like mm-hmm. six, six billion years ago. But, um, you know, um, very t- intelligent creatures like our human beings tend to do a lot of self-destructing things. Right. So um, that's that's one thing, whether they're still there or not. And if they're sending out the signals that are beyond our detection, say they're not doing any like ENM waves, right. not any sort of light, then it's beyond our capability to even, even listen, right? Perceive it, yeah. Yeah. That would be the more optimistic. I don't. I like that better than the idea that that the most common occurrence is that a civilization is four billion years in the making, and then they're around for a couple thousand years and they die. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a bad Twilight Zone episode, right? All over the galaxy, you've got this long time period required to form something so incredible and special, and then they just kill themselves, <laughs> and that's just what happens. There was a, I remember this Isaac Asimov short story, I think it was Isaac Asimov, mm-hmm. where kind of like, you know, basically an alien comes down and uh, and is talking to somebody, chose somebody talking to them, they're like, look, you know, we're going to, we have to kill the earth, we have to kill all you guys, because I'm part of the galactic uh, thing, and uh, we've been watching you, and yeah. you are of the aggressive species, uh, we're all of the cooperative species, like bees and ants and stuff, so they don't kill each other. They're all like super cooperative as a species. <laughs> and we we've seen people like you before. You you just want to kill everything and take over everything. So we're here to kill you because you cannot be advanced. You cannot advance further than where you are now. And uh, so I have to kill you. And then the guy has to like talk him out of it. <laughs> like, wow. no, please don't kill us. <laughs> just we'll just wait a minute. We'll see what happens. You know. And I don't remember what happens. I think I think the aliens like okay, well. We'll give you another chance, but uh, that's an interesting thing. You know, would it might be a little anthropomorphic to assume that all of these other civilizations are like us in that they are self-destructive? Perhaps they are the the polar opposite and have some other kind of instinct that that uh, you know accelerates their cooperation and growth and everything. Yeah, that's totally possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a question to you if um, they were, in fact, those very advanced uh, civilizations. Um, and one day, say, the aliens visited us and say, oh, we're just going to kill you. Do you think that they would even care to ki- kill us? Right. Why would they care? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah we're like, 
yeah we're just like ant to human yeah. um right to them we're so, ants yeah would they, they could let us go another couple thousand years and then and then destroy us if they want to yeah yeah just let us play our little our little soap opera down here <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it is it is alarming though to live in a time where you know if you just look at the 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 acceleration of progress and you look at you know a couple thousand years ago the way the world was when you were born that's how it was when you died nothing nothing happened mm-hmm. and then you know since the industrial revolution it's been accelerate i mean the the acceleration has been constant but now we're just at this like knee of the curve where every 10 years it's unrecognizably different and I just feel like something's going to happen, you know. I don't know if it's we're everything's going to be great and it's all going to work out and we're going to transcend all this stuff, or it's going to be horrible. <laughs> well, something's definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't heard, uh, well, there's a asteroid that's going to you know pass by Earth um, around 2039, mm-hmm. and that's going to be incredibly close to Earth. Oh wow! So. Um, well, it's it's still like tens of um, tens of uh, thousand kilometers, I believe, but it's believed to reach the Earth where it's only one tenth of the distance to the Moon. Oh wow! So that's that's really close. That's extremely close. That's extremely close. Twenty thirty nine, right? Um, yeah, if I re- remember the year correctly. How old is Bruce Willis? Will he still? Be, he'll still be alive, I think. Right? We got what is it? Twenty twenty one. Yeah, he's he's young enough. He'll still be around. Hopefully, we'll be fine yeah. <laughs> as long as Bruce Willis is here. He'll protect us. But that is a lot. But I mean, okay. So not only our own destruction, but you know these other natural forces. Maybe we'll figure out a way to. Uh, I don't think we're too far away from figuring out how to deflect an asteroid or destroy it or something like that. I mean, we've landed on an asteroid or a comet or something, right? Oh, uh, I am not aware of that. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've sent a, or I think it. I, I don't know if it was the Japanese or somebody sent a craft and it touched down on a on a comet, I believe. On a comet? I think so. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Or an asteroid, or maybe both. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, I I need to look that up. That that sounds super interesting. Yeah, we can Armageddon that stuff. We'll bring a bomb and it'll be. F- <laughs> I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about, uh, you know, authoritarian rule and <laughs> just, uh, descending into horrible form of self-government. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, um, well, um, going back a little bit to the, um, uh, extraterrestrial intelligent life that we just talked about. Um, so do you believe that, um, alien actually had visited earth and um there were some people who were like abducted abducted. yeah yeah i don't i don't believe that i am on your side in that i believe that extraterrestrial life is out there in fact i would imagine that there it's rather common uh but no i don't believe any has ever been here yeah yeah i'm with you it's just too it's you can tell that like we have a tendency to personify everything. And so, you know, our gods look like people and, and we make animals dress up and walk upright and talk and just everything kind of ends up like us. Mm -hmm. And so when I see the version of aliens that these people come up with that basically look like us, their heads are a little bigger and whatever gray or something, you know, but it's like you just invented other people and you're saying that's what aliens are i don't believe you i think that if if we saw actual aliens 
it would just it, our minds would explode out of how different they are and and how not just physically but the way they think and like what their kind of emotions are and like whether they have art and like whether what they're how they communicate it would just be so other Mm -hmm. that it transcends any capacity we could have to like conceive of it ourselves you know yeah i i agree with you that's a very good point Mm -hmm. and also i think if the aliens they were in fact capable of visiting earth but for our human beings, we can't even detect, you know, any sort of extraterrestrial life so far. Then that means that that alien, they must be like way advanced in technology right. than us. Um, so there would be no way that they could be, you know, even captured by some some government. No, and, definitely and, not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they're 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 advanced enough that they can travel across the stars everywhere and zip in and out, but not so advanced. That, that number one, what are they getting out of an anal probe? What, it, what are they figuring out? Yeah. They're like, oh, this will get all the important data to bring home to our home planet by rooting around in there. And second of all, like you said, they're going to get captured. Are you kidding me? That's just ridiculous. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, okay, well, I, I believe they're out there, but just don't say that we have captured one. Right. Yeah. I think, I think to me, the interesting thing is if they're there... Uh, we have not interacted or are they aware of us and staying away? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think those are the, if, if they exist at all, one of it's one of those two things, you know? Yeah, that's, that's right. Cause what if they're, I mean, it, it is interesting though, because we're at such a delicate time where we've just newly acquired the capacity to sort of transmit information and receive information. And we're so, you know, how long does a civilization exist in that time? I mean, we're talking about 100 years, 200 years. Mm -hmm. So the idea that another civilization would be at the same stage at us is the probability is almost zero, right? They'd either be some kind, they'd either be something resembling what was on Earth 500 million or a billion years ago, or they're even just a couple thousand years past us and already unrecognizably advanced to us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it is true what you're saying about like the fact that we're looking for the signals that we're making now is kind of ridiculous. Because how long does a civilization make those kinds of signals? A couple hundred years probably. You know what I <laughs> right. mean? Right. And then they either have some other thing or maybe they retreat into their own technology and they're silent because they're living in virtual worlds or something. <laughs> or who knows? You know, It's just so hard to know what, could, what it could be like. <laughs> yeah. So I would say like one difficulty for searching for extraterrestrial life is that we only have our ourselves as the single data point that we could refer to. That's right. So say like... Um, what what life would be using water right and then um we would also guess that they might have some sort of um, like rna or dna Mm -hmm. some sort of uh, genetic materials or they should also be like cell based or carbon based but in fact anything could be possible as long as it doesn't violate physics right yeah 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 and with every step we take there we're getting more and more anthropomorphic and we're just basically building us again you know Whereas what if, what if in the interstellar dust somehow, you know, yeah. something happened? It's just it's crazy to think about. Right. So the search currently is still narrowing down to 
basically just search for another humankind um mm-hmm. i would say or like very similar to that yeah just because beyond that we have like no constraints at all and we don't even know where to look and what to look for right yeah it could be everywhere it could be in this room right now oh yeah it could be oh i already see like three of them <laughs> you guys we got it i found the aliens yeah uh, what about, um, just to kind of wrap things up, wh- where, uh, what movies depicting um, alien contact or alien life or some sort of interaction with aliens do you, th- do you particularly like, uh, either because they seem more realistic to you or just because you like them? What, what are some movies that you think kind of got it better than others? Um, well, so first, unfortunately, I'm not a big sci-fi fan ah, okay yeah but i i did see um so, some movies n- nothing related to like communication to aliens but mm-hmm. interstellar is one that i particularly like because well there is something there though because right who some something made the wormhole and uh, oh yeah 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 so it's it's not like the depict of um a right alien but it's, which is it's, better it's a little more mis- there's some mystique there you're like yeah. who, who were they what did they do yeah yeah, so um, the their uh, depiction of the black hole is like super accurate, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got the accretion disk there, and they've got the um, the gravitational lensing effect. Mm-hmm. The so, time dilation as a plot point. Yes, <laughs> is yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I would say um, that's a very um, in terms of physics, that's a very accurate mm-hmm. um, movie. Playing off that w- with the aliens where you kind of know of them, but you don't see them. I, my favorite movie of, of all time is 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I just, le- have you seen it? Oh, no, but I've heard it. Oh, man, you got to see it. Oh. <laughs> well, I the implication is that we've been cultivated by aliens, essentially. They sort of uh, manufactured the, the, they sort of pushed us along the way, our, the evolution of our species, mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, and that's cra- and you never see him, of course, because because Kubrick is a genius and knows <laughs> rule number one of Alien is don't show the alien. Oh yeah, yeah. well that sort of is um, reminds me of um, a theory. Well, it's not a theory; it's just a you know a saying of um, we're actually um, all part of a, a big simulation, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but there's no way whether you can test that that's true or not. Essentially, yeah, yeah it sort so of transcends, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, well, if we cannot test it, then let's not worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> Which is alarming. The more I read about it, the more I'm like, I really can't find any holes in this. <laughs> it's kind of alarming. Yeah, I, I, I totally feel you. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so check out 2001 Space Odyssey. Of, of course, Definitely yeah. You got to watch that. But I think we covered some good stuff today. I think we talked a good amount about, well, you know, what the conditions are required uh, that are required for life and that that we really don't know what those are. They could be uh, similar to ours, but it could be utterly different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, talked a little bit about Drake and Fermi and uh, thinking we're kind of on the same page in terms of like there's probably some, but maybe not a lot or I don't know where they are. But um yeah, I do. I, we didn't go into this thinking we were going to solve anything, but uh, N- no, no, it certainly yeah. is fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's not like we are not going to solve anything. It's like the human beings is currently just don't know yet, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. so it's not our fault. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a long shot, but within our lifetimes, 
who knows maybe something will happen yeah well i'm i'm fairly optimistic um mm-hmm. to see you know the next 10 milestones uh, in terms of space exploration that's true by the time we're 90 whatever a lot of stuff is gonna happen yeah maybe we're gonna retire on mars who knows that would be wild <laughs> do some you know with the low gravity get some good cardio in high jump and oh yeah diving and uh <laughs> dive from like these crazy high rocks and just sort of float down <laughs> that'd be pretty fun yeah and yeah and yeah. i probably wouldn't care about the one-way trip when i'm 90 so. and when it's all nice and paradisical over there oh yeah yeah that's true <laughs> okay well that's a lot of food for thought so thanks so much for coming by yeah of course thanks for the invitation day and thanks for everybody for listening thank you bye bye